Hello and welcome to another episode of Brave UX. I'm Brendan Jarvis, Managing Founder of The Space In Between, and it's my job to help you to put the pieces of the product puzzle together. I do that by interviewing world-class experts in UX and product management, and they share with us their expert learning, stories, and advice. My guest today is Ryan Rumsey. Ryan is the CEO and founder of Second Wave Dive, a groundbreaking new design leadership training company that is helping designers around the world to level up their business skills and transform their careers. His company has worked with product design and executive leaders from companies like Google, IBM, Atlassian, Dell, and ANZ. An experienced designer with a career spanning over 20 years and across interaction design, front-end development, and product management, Ryan has led design teams at Apple, EA, Nestle, and most recently at USAA. You've probably heard of some of those companies. He's the author of an invaluable new book published with Envision called Business Thinking for Designers. It's been described as a guide that helps designers to gain more trust and build better relationships with business partners, non-designers, empowering great work. Ryan's a member of the Design Leadership Forum at Envision. He's spoken at numerous meetups and conferences around the world, including TEDx, FXD, and Creative Mornings. He's been an actor, a ski instructor, and a farm worker, and he's a massive fan of the Liverpool Football Club, so I imagine he's pretty happy about how the club is tracking this season. A clear, compassionate, and compelling communicator, Ryan has a great story to tell and a huge heart and mind for helping designers to increase their impact, confidence, and career success. It's a great pleasure to have him here today to speak with us and to share his experiences. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's really great to be here. And this is a conversation I've been looking forward to since we, we put the time in the diary or even before that. And before we get into the, the sort of more obvious content, you know, that you're really passionate about and that I'm sure we can talk for hours on, I wanted to just dive quickly into your backstory. I understand you were a professional actor and you were living in LA at the time where you landed a role on a music video for a band called Stained. What's the story there? Um, I, I think this, so yes, all true. I, I think most of it is um, I had lots of interests as a, as a young man and uh, wasn't quite clear on what I wanted to do. Um, but I was very intrigued and, and, Loved film as a kid, uh, uh, loved acting. I, I, I did a lot of performing and singing. And um, though I didn't go to university to do that, I, uh, it was never kind of an option for me. Um, that attraction was still sort of there. And um, I, uh, uh, it was more a matter of circumstance that I moved to LA and decided to do that because I, um, in the late 90s, very late 90s uh, story, I was working for a rave company, um, setting up uh, uh, events all over the world, like in New York and Ibiza and, and whatnot. And that sounds, company- sounds uh, terrible. It sounds, sounds terrible. terrible. Well, it went terrible because uh, uh, it turned out my uh, bosses were embezzling money and, and selling securities without a license. And so suddenly, I was without my lovely sort of cush job. And um, so, you know, what am I going to do? And um, I had been designing and, and making things on the web for a while and doing graphic work, but I like just never thought of that as an option for me. Um, I grew up with parents who were in banking and insurance. So um, I just, I, I decided to move to LA. I got an opportunity to like have a roommate and uh, I loved acting and whatnot. So I just thought I'd give it a go. I had a sort of just like maybe three months of, of money to sort of get me started. And, um, you know, I, I kind of got lucky um, pretty quickly and uh, started uh, doing commercial work. So I got to being commercials for like Burger King and Pennzoil Motor Oil and Earthlink, if you remember Earthlink. And uh, but my first gig was was 
uh, as the lead actor in this music video for Stained. Um, and it was a very odd time because this is when MTV still played music videos. Uh, the, the song was number one on MTV. It was, they were on the cover of Rolling Stone. Um, but the video came out three weeks before 9-11. And the whole video, the premise was a building collapsing. And so they removed it from the air, just like this devastating stuff that happened here in the States with 9-11. And so this weird kind of thing of like being on a high professionally where I was getting called in to, you know, circumvent a lot of the audition stuff and just kind of get into things, but then go from like being on TV every day to like, oh, this could be a big money maker for me to suddenly uh, those events happening. And so um, I did that for, yeah, a little while and, and was making web stuff on the side. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't love it. I wasn't never, I, I was never like, I need to do this. I, I, I enjoyed being on set, but I didn't like everything else around it too much. Yeah, it's interesting here, you know, here you talk about the situation with 9-11 and how you were on this high and then it sort of came, you know, came, came to a screeching halt. Um, and it just goes to show that you can't always, you don't always know what's around the corner, especially from a career point of view. And I've heard you talk uh, on a number of your talks that are online um, in the past about your journey to, to design and how you had tried mm -hmm. your hand at a, at a number of different things, you know, and you strike me. Um, and we've only met just now, right? So this is just an outside in perspective. You strike me as someone that has a, a very um, intentional and strong focus now on what you're doing, but that wasn't always the case. You know, what, apart from, you know, 9-11, you know, what was it that was sort of driving the um, unsettled behavior uh, before <laughs> you found design? Were you wrestling with something? Was there something that you had to, to realize in yourself? I mean, sure, obviously. Uh, and I've, I've spoken about this maybe in one talk. Um, I, I suffered from, and still do, from a lot of mental health stuff. And um, um, this sort of wick, weird mix of having lots of interests, but also dealing with depression, uh, uh, oddly gave me focus in some strange ways. I... I um, enjoyed doing different things and, and luckily grew up uh, uh, in an environment where, you know, I had parents that would say like, go figure it out. You know, like my dad would say, you know, welcome home for the summer. You're now going to uh, redo uh, uh, our doors and the hinges, you know, like weird stuff like this. And, but my depression uh, would ultimately um, kind of, Play, put me in a place where I would just stay at home. I would not go anywhere, but I would be on the computer for like 10 hours and just, you know, I would have my job and then I'd come home, what, whatever my job was. And I'd come home and I would literally just reverse engineer code, you know, um, learn action script, uh, figure something else out. Right. And, and a lot of my learning early on in the web in the, you know, the early nineties was just breaking HTML and the view source and all that type of stuff. And how do I combine that with the Photoshop weird stuff that I was doing and the drawing that I was doing. And, um, so, you know, when people ask that question, like, how did you figure this out? I was like, well, it's like this weird combination of like depression, uh, situational circumstance and um having lots of interests somehow found me into this this place and for designers or anybody that might be listening to this who's feeling a, a bit stuck or that sort of lack of focus as to where to go next you know have you got anything from your own experience that you could share with them any any advice any sort of practical um mm. practical tips as to how they might be able to you know stop asking themselves the question you know why does this whatever that is keep happening to me yeah um you know one i would i would certainly advocate if you have uh, the ability to do so to um 
invest in your own mental health. Um, my wife's a psychotherapist. It's a big deal uh, uh, to be able to have access to to those types of resources, and um, it should be more accessible. Um, for me, uh, in, in my own dealings and just kind of the way my brain work is, I I would um, sort of I love tools. You know, so I would just kind of love to remix tools. I call it Weird Al Yankoviking. Like, just how do you take the thing that was meant for this and maybe without the, so much satire, but just apply it to this, right? And so what ended up happening was um, practically, I would just start to make my own rubrics and rating scales, you know, and and kind of like, well, have, have I tried to, have I tried to fix this? Well, I haven't. And do I care about this? And I do. I think one of the the things that, you know, um, I I let other people know is there's there's a lot more people that are in the same space than you think. And there are a lot of people who feel stuck. And it's scary. Um, and it can be quite vulnerable to share with people that you are in a space like that. Um, but but there's so many people that I have in, in my life have come out of the woodworks who have, because of my own vulnerability, were then vulnerable with me, right? Um, but I will absolutely advocate for mental health resources, um, um, first and foremost. Yeah, that's a really important message. And thank you for sharing with us, Ryan. I want to change gears now and, and sort of bring bring us to something that's really exciting, which is the new point in your career that you've reached, and that's leaving the sort of corporate design world to focus on building your own business. I mentioned that in the introduction. It's called Second Wave Dive. You know, that's a really great name. What's <laughs> the story behind it? Um, I am a, a child of the 1980s. Um, through and through. And uh, one of my favorite films of all time is uh, Flash Gordon, uh, the 1980 version of Flash Gordon with, with Queen as the soundtrack. And so I was, I was, you know, only six at the time. But um, the name Second Wave Dive is a quote from the film. And um, for me, though, the meaning is more about um, this kind of second wave of me uh, um, you know, even though I'm in my late forties now, sort of growing into this, this other point of my life and then diving into, you know, kind of more niche things, weird things. And so then the mission is to then help others who may find themselves stuck, helping them find this next wave of themselves. Uh, uh, and let's go dive in. Um, I am I am a, a huge advocate of sort of deliberate practice, right? And that, you know, a way to get stuck is to be curious, a little bit uncomfortable, but in a safe space, so that um, you can kind of identify some of your own loops, <laughs> and and kind of see other perspectives, other ways that that they could be addressed. So that's that's the name. It's it's an homage to a really cheesy but amazing 1980s film and and Queen and Brian Blessed, who's a brilliant British actor. And uh, you know that's it. For those of you that are keen to check it out, we'll uh, we'll put a link to to the to the clip uh, in the show notes. I'm sure it'll be available somewhere on YouTube. Yeah, it will. It is. <laughs> so Ryan, you've talked about the 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 sort of purpose. Um, of second wave dive is to help uh, people that are in that uh, period of their career to 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 get to that next step or that level up. You know, what are the ways in which you're doing that through through your company? What does it look so, like? So, right. So, I mean, pragmatically, what we do are um, courses, coaching, and community. Right. Um, the the types of courses that that I get into are um, things that were not typically taught either from an instructional standpoint, say out of university or really um, actively mentored in, 
once we become professionals. There, you know, these common things where we know that we should uh, develop relationships. We know that we have to earn trust, right? We know kind of all these things um, that that will help us. That sort of like will relieve our anxiety, relieve our burden. Where's where's that curriculum? It's not there, and so uh, you know, a lot of the courses that um, I lead. Uh, uh, and and continue to uh, start to put out are all in this weird space. But then how do we take um, this sort of concept of peer feedback and uh, community and developing stronger relationships and networks um, other than say a traditional workshop? Um, how do we combine those, remix these in weird ways? And so, you know, it's all kind of at a source of some of my own frustrations of, you know, when, when I started building organizations from scratch, that was my job being hired to do that. And I spent about 10 years doing that. There was no guidebook. And 10 years ago, there wasn't a lot of these conversations around design leadership of, or whatever, you know, product leadership of how to do these things. And so I completely felt alone. And a lot of the very inspirational presentations and talks that I would see left me with no pragmatic or applicable ways to do anything on Monday. I was like, yes, I hear your principles, but you haven't sort of demonstrated how that's been your responsibility or that you've put some of these theories into practice, you know? And so um, a lot of the material then is these weird, unique situations that I've been in and then applying things that are, are not the traditional, what you would find in, in medium or, or in a typical, you know, presentation. And it's not for everybody too. Uh, I, I realize that, but it's um, yeah, so far, going okay. And I do the same coaching, a lot of executives, uh, you know, as soon as you become an executive or you run an organization, you're, you're much more like a small business owner than you are a creative director. You're on your own, right? There's a, there's you're, a, you're, you're at the front. People are looking right. at you. You've got to have right. That's right. That's, that's totally right and and people are you know you're kind of waiting for somebody else to make a decision and somebody everybody every they're all looking at you and we haven't been taught or we don't necessarily have had so, those experiences before we're we're quite you know new to this immature in this space and so my my courses and coaching and community is all like how do we expose some of that in a safe way how do we then uh, show you how you can apply that to your real world now um, and then keep that sort of going, right? Uh, keep keep yeah. that kind of conversation going. Yeah. And, you know, when you, when you talk about safe space, what comes to mind for me is that um, often it seems that people inside their own organizations, because they're the leader or they're aspiring to be, they don't feel safe because of the political nature of the organization to yeah. share those fears and anxieties with their colleagues. Is, is that what you're getting at with this? That's, that's a big part of it. Um, I think as well, uh, there's, there is a lot of uh, persona and perception about like having all the answers. It is, it is really vulnerable to, and it's a wonderful leadership trait that I admire, but it's, it's not, readily available. It's quite rare to sort of see, you know, uh, uh, leaders who are, will fully admit when they don't know a thing. And so what I mean by this is um, this space to, yeah, acknowledge that you may you don't have the answers, to acknowledge that you don't want to let your colleagues know that you don't know all the answers. But also I think to talk about not just the happy path, right? Um, it's difficult to lead people. It's difficult to be responsible for other people 
you know, their careers, their aspirations. And there are lots of parts of that where, you know, um, even giving somebody like their first review, if you're the, a manager for the first time, like has, sitting down with somebody and actually giving somebody a, a review, even if it's good, gosh, that's a totally different experience than, you know, evaluating the effectiveness of a, a, a button. Yeah. Know? Yeah. And, and so the spaces that we want to create are then also to acknowledge that we have different backgrounds, um, different perspectives, uh, uh, different uh, uh, opportunities that we presented, different privilege, right? And, and so how can we kind of uh, ensure that we're, we're doing our best to acknowledge and, and be, be direct with those, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. And at what point was this the thing you knew you wanted to bring to the world? Uh, I would say, uh, I knew I was burning out and, uh, my last role that I had, um, I actually was not leading design. So I, I decided to take a role in corporate strategy and work for the chief strategy officer. And so lead a small internal management consulting team where I could be present when design or product management kind of wasn't in the room, <laughs> uh, be present with executive and, and board members. Sounds like you uh, infiltrated, you're the designer. <laughs> yeah, it was like, <laughs> but uh, I, I pretty much knew within 30 days that it, it was not going to live up to the expectations that I had had. And so, um, for a variety of reasons, you know, a variety of inputs that you get so often in those 30 days. Um, and so right off the bat, I sort of said, what if I, what if, can I still do a really good job? Can I still treat people fairly? Can I still uh, bring my best? But can I be a researcher? Can I observe some of the things that I've, I've, you know, been feeling myself um, and be a researcher and be a, a colleague to those other people feeling those things too. Because I think that's kind of at the heart of a lot of these, these big words that, you know, a lot of my experiences in big, big enterprise companies, right? Not, not so much agency work, but when you hear all these big words like transformation and innovation and blah, 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 where, we're, we're just talking about people change. And so what then, you know, a lot of the same themes of people kind of expecting the company was ready for the change they were going to bring. And like, like really almost hit in the face with a brick that, whoa, they were not ready. Now what do I do? And so that's that's me kind of saying yeah i dealt with that quite a bit what if that were just the what were that if that was just the norm how do we still succeed how do we again relieve ourselves of these burdens these anxieties that we feel um you know and kind of let you know the art of letting other people have our way um without that being like our our core identity or, or where we place our own value, you know? And um, so, yeah, it was about 30 days into my last role. I ended up being there about 18 months um, and took some very intentional decisions to sort of say, how could I set myself with a runway? How can I kind of really plan this out and, um, and, and give it a go and see what happens? And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very fortunate that I could do that that I was in a position to kind of plan for that and kind of make it happen, if you will. Yeah, you've touched on this notion of culture where yeah. the organization says they want some one thing, but the reality when you brush up against it is that they don't actually either know what they've asked for or they're not ready for what you have to bring. 
And the more I talk to, to people in our community as designers, researchers, people in UX and products, the more I realize that this is not an uncommon situation and that it's almost surprising for people to hear very almost scarily similar stories from halfway around the world of the same cultural challenge. And I wanted to come to this notion of culture through language, which is also something that you briefly touched on. You know, language is such a powerful force. It's, it's something that can build, build cohesion or it can bring chaos. And it's really telling as to how we look at the world. But words can have more than one meaning. Yes. And yeah, which, which, which is like a curious thing when it comes to interpreting what, what people are actually saying. And I wanted to ask you about your experience about the alignment that either does or doesn't exist in the language that designers and I think you call them business partners and for people that are listening, uh, my interpretation of that is non-designers. Right. How aligned are those vocabularies that they are using when they're working together on solving business challenges? Um, my, my experience is varied. Um, I have been part of core teams where everybody was clearly on the, on the same page when it came to much of the, the language that was being used. You know, um, Apple was a pretty unique space where a lot of that language, but Apple is like operationally structured far different than anywhere else. Like Apple only has one business unit. There is no iPhone team. You know, and, people and compare, who don't know this, this blows right. people's minds. They can't right, right. know how it works. Right. And so you have like all these other companies that have, you know, uh, uh, seven different business units, and then they try to create omni-channel programs. And those don't work because the the actual balance sheet of each one of those seven business units is, is kind of in competition with each other, right? And so... Um, I think language, the first thing, the first time I really, I really saw it as being this difference was when I, when I went from Apple to electronic arts, um, I worked for the same boss. Um, and there were about eight of us that kind of shifted over. Uh, um, and what worked for me with the same boss at Apple did not work at all at electronic arts. And it took me, you know, I was very naive to what's going on here. I couldn't sort of find the patterns, you know. I think as a designer, you know, that's that's one as an interaction designer, a lot of my core background is around like finding patterns. Um, and I couldn't find the patterns, and, and and I luckily had a wonderful mentor who, you know, just said like, "Have you ever noticed if you let that person?" just keep talking, they will talk themselves into a circle. Right? And and so is the first kind of thing of like going, oh, interesting, right? Yeah. But then what I discovered is that largely what was so familiar at Apple was so nascent, was so unknown at all these other companies. You know, even uh, 2021, we're talking about like stuff that, you know, I perhaps was doing almost 15 years ago is like, people think it's from the future, right? They, they don't even understand. And so what I began to sort of notice was um, language is interesting. Uh, if you look at English versus French, like 60% of the words are the same. They're just pronounced differently. And so one of the first little kind of tricks that I began to find was a lot of teams were making this shift from say like project management to product management, especially at these big companies. They saw everything about agile, they saw all the hipness and velocities and you know, let's let's do all the things and scrums and and whatnot. And I was very close with the engineering world. Uh, uh, I had spent a lot of time developing as well. But what I noticed was that they were borrowing the language of project management and just 
assuming that it meant the same thing in product. And so what I began to do was use, like, try to just understand their definitions, borrow them and just say, oh, you know, that's interesting. You know, we, we have that same word. We use that word. And whether we were using it or not, I would just kind of like, oh, we're so close to you, right? So think of phase gates, old school project management, design, develop, test, build, you know, whatever the gates are, you know, they're, they're essentially like, we've done all the things, we throw it over the fence to the next team, right? So they were entirely structured. Their entire process of how they worked was all around phase gates. Well, when I went into a company and now they were saying they were all product and how do we work with design? I, I started going, you know, actually we have phase gates. We think in phase gates too. We just think in like different cadence. So we think really around uh, a conception and introduction and a decline and things like this, but they're all the same. They're just gates, but you know, so I started to play around with the words and the language. And then I would say like, oh, you know, usually you have projects that last, you know, uh, eight weeks to three months. Well, uh, well, we just work in like three week projects. So that's all really, that's all the difference is. It's we just, we just have different sized projects. And it was much easier to kind of like, approach it that way, then say, nope, here's the new, here's the new language. Here's the new dictionary. You got it all wrong. And I think that's a, that's a thing that a lot of designers and researchers in particularly are um, maybe not so self-aware of. What is that? What is that thing? So think of the word design. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Engineers have been using that word for, for a long time long before designers kind of decided that we were going to study the, you know, the art of, of design and the methodology of design. So like walking into, if you walk into a, like an IT environment, they, they have a clear definition of design already. Do you know your history of that? When I started at USAA, I led a team called experience strategy. So the team was called Experience Strategy. They did Experience Strategy, and they provided Experience Strategies. Like, you know, nouns, verbs, adjectives, all at once. <laughs> Same with design. We call it design. We do design. We are design. And so one of the basic questions that I start with is like, are we even clear with our own language? Right. So one of the, the first question I asked of my team at USA, I said, what's an experience strategy? And I got, you know, different answers from everybody. That's a problem. I said, well, 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 no wonder nobody trusts us. They think we're making it up. And the same could be said with design. Uh, uh, you know, when I work with an executive leader, I'll say, well, how do you define design? at your organization. And usually they're like, oh, that's, that's impossible. And I'm like, actually, no, you're, that's your job, that's your job. It's okay to have clarity and define it here for your context, that's your job. Because without that, your business partners think you're making it up. If I go to 10 different designers on the team and I get 10 different definitions, there's no way I'm doing anything more than giving you the responsibility of the interface because I think you're just making it up. Yeah. And this is such a key point of tension that exists for designers and their relationship with the business. And mm -hmm. it comes back to what you said about being clear and aligned on what it is that you're actually doing, because inevitably you're going to be challenged to articulate your value to the organization. And if you can't do that, then like you've hinted at, you're in a lot of trouble. Now, what is the reason for the difficulty that we have as designers to align behind what it is that we do and articulate the value of that? You know, I have my own theories. Uh, I don't have any data. <laughs> 
what I think a lot of it boils down to just in my experience is like identity. Um, both as an industry, but also as individuals, right? Um, we've done a lot of marketing of design as an industry of being this pivotal, you know, impactful thing. And I, I believe it is. Um, and we've done a lot of, you know, 15 years ago, there were designers were relatively rare. And now there's what, 250,000 of us, you know, in the market. So we've done a good job of kind of elevating uh, uh, the, the desire for it. But it's also if we want to kind of mature and be involved in other conversations, we may have to wrestle with a lot of that identity we've built up for ourselves. And it's not easy to kind of let go or adjust one's identity. And so that's that's a lot of the the kind of things. And and the the only way I've I've kind of said it or been able to sort of get people to hear it, maybe, maybe there's maybe we're part of this. Maybe there's something that we have in is um I've certainly worked with and uh, uh, discussed with lots of designers over the years who have moved to different roles, moved to different places. And what I, I mentioned to them is, is if you're having the same conversations or, or the same frustrations, like if, if that product manager only wasn't here or that uh, a CPO you know, was more mature, everything would be great. If those are the same things that happen from place A to B to C, you're the only constant variable. You're, you're the only one that is the same through all of that. And I think there's this, uh, uh, once we kind of understand that, oh, maybe this is about us as well, and if we're, we feel a little bit of comfortable, or we even have a little bit of space to be comfortable in um, moving beyond, say, what we we had placed up as our identity, we can we can kind of get there. I, I think of a lot of things as like everything is a prototype, including me, right? Uh, I, I'm just a prototype, and I'm just running a series of experiments, and. Um, I've never identified solely as UX designer or product designer or developer or strategist. Uh, and maybe that's because of my own mental illness and, and curiosity and lots of interesting things. And, um, but I think there's, that's the, the core that I've seen a lot is, is one's own identity and, and as an industry, our identity. Yeah, I mean, it, it almost sounds like we need to let go of some of the things we hold to be true. And, you know, we're so good at using empathy and understanding for who we're designing for, but we seem to be, on, on, on the whole, somewhat terrible at reflecting that back in the organization at the other people that we're working with. Yeah. And I think we we can be quite chaotic in doing it with ourselves. We as designers are quite competitive with each other. <laughs> right? Uh, we don't do a lot of listening, active listening with each other. I mean, there, certainly that's, that's not a, uh, I'm generalizing, of course, but I've seen both. I've seen a lot of active listening, but I've also seen a lot of rewarding of those who um, shame our, our colleagues, right? Um, and so uh, that's all really hard stuff. It's, I'm not saying it's easy. I certainly wrestle with it all the time, but I think when we talk about identity how often do we look at our colleagues in other parts and they're, we're always saying like they have to change right or or you know here are these things that uh, uh we're pushing at them we're pushing empathy at them we're pushing 
uh, uh, human-centeredness. And are we actually living that? Are we embodying that all the time? It's hard to do. And maybe if we do a little self-reflection where we could do better in some circumstances. And, and look, we're young. One of the things that I've been in sort of looking at, uh, particularly maybe because I'm a parent, is um, phases of uh, uh, human development. As individuals, we've, we've gone through child and adolescence, and m- most of us are adults now. I say most, right? But as teams of as collaborative partners, we're still quite in the child phase. And we're often inside of roles or companies where like we change teams every 18 months. Like we don't actually allow that that development, that adolescence to go through and actually become mature adults as collaborative partners. And so there's, there's all sorts of things there that I could say, like, are, are circumstantially, um, you know, getting in the way sometimes, but we're still, re- we're still the new kids on the block, right? We are still just sort of trying to figure it out. This yeah. Is, these are part of the growing pains, right? Yeah. It's like we're uh, the adolescent, the teenage years, just trying to find oh, yeah. who we are in the world and how do we work with the other people that exist here? Right. Yeah. Yelling at our parents and yeah. uh, slamming doors sometimes, but also um, walking in with like wide eyed curiosity. So it's that like that lovely teen. My oldest is 12. <laughs> so just getting to that point of like, oh, wow, I'm discovering all these things and the world is an oyster. And then, you know, push and and pull in all sorts of ways. And so I agree. I think that's a lovely observation that we're maybe still just in the larger scheme of things, just in the teenage years. So if we hold that to be true and we're to think about what the ideal way of working with an organization looks like as a designer. And there are examples of people at design-led companies at Apple, Netflix, and others, and I'm sure you actually know these these people yourself. You know, What have they realized, those people that are in design leadership positions and they really are pushing the strategic agenda for those organizations, what have they realized and what are they doing that other designers could do? Um, I think what they're doing so well is they are really getting to know the context of what they're designing for and with. You know, if we look at companies like Apple or Netflix, um, Airbnb, you know, whatever, we know the narrative story. We often don't know like really what's happening day to day. So we, we, we know the story that we're told. But what I also know from friends of mine who are leaders and, and you know, things that are working well is they become um, not only self-aware, but like contextually aware that Apple's prime competitive market differentiation is through design. You know, if you look at Apple versus a company like Dell, they're their business models are largely the same, selling computer peripherals to uh, uh, enterprise environments, to customers, individuals, but their strategies are completely different. Apple is selling premium priced things through design that integrates, you know, systemic effects of software meets hardware meets, you know, whatnot. Dell has has chosen a strategy where they they essentially win by superior supply chain and and lower pricing. So when you look at where real mature leaders are, is they recognize that context, and they may say, "Well, at Apple, it has to be through this, right? It has to be through the software, it has to be through the services." Whereas at Dell, it might say, "We're going to go totally double down on." a supply chain and just completely redo B2B 
in a way that nobody can even see. But all we have to do is like mimic or just copy what other people put into the market when it comes to like consumer software. And, and we maintain that advantage. And so the, the mature leaders that I see is they, they recognize that they are part of a piece and they recognize that when they are looking to push something forward, they actually know, am I trying to maintain the competitive edge within a, the current business model or am I proposing some type of new model? And what are the risks and benefits of each uh, uh, and, and, you know, sort of cognizance of that, that sort of thing. And I, I think, look, at, at the end of the day, we don't really talk about it. This is something that I've been writing and I haven't just sort of shared yet is that these are systems problems to solve. It's not a design problem. There's systems problem because we have processes, we have products, we have people, and we have balance sheet things to solve and address like all at the same time. And so the, the leaders that I, I love to work with and I love to be around, they acknowledge that and they sort of say, all right, how can we not just look at it from this angle? How might we approach it where we choose parts of those systems together and, and work on those together? So it sounds like their perspective lifts from the craft and the practice of the design organization and they almost bring themselves up to the level of the wider company and they're able to join the dots between what they're doing in their craft and how that's furthering the mission of the organization. Completely. They are dot connectors. They are uh, uh, overlaps in the Venn. Uh, uh, right. They're building bridges. And, and, and that's a, a wonderful challenge. Like an, talk about a design challenge to solve. What a wonderful challenge. Um, one of, uh, I, I was fortunate at USA to work with Mariah Garrett, who's the chief design officer there. Um, and to see her kind of, you know, growing a team from like 30 to 300. So first dealing with scale, but then dealing with, you know, colleagues who were like suddenly moving over to safe agile and like, Oh, that's a thing. And like, Oh, and reorgs and like suddenly seeing that. And she's been so great at kind of seeing how all these things connect and not hitting a panic button, not, you know, uh, uh, continuing to uh, create a and foster a wonderful environment for the people that work in her organization um, and have that balance of like, oh, we're, we are individuals and we are teams and we are colleagues and we are peers and we are here to, you know, serve our customers and we are here to make money because we're a for-profit company. Like finding those sort of balances. Is yeah, let's talk about that. Let's talk about making money because this is also something that designers, <laughs> not, and I'm speaking in general terms, it's obviously very difficult for us to get into specific examples here, but it's something that comes up where designers somewhat feel uncomfortable about this notion when you're working in an enterprise, a profit enterprise, that what they're doing is contributing to the bottom line. And there's almost like a revulsion to that. You know, what, what, what is that about? Like, why do we not uh, get that? I don't, I don't know. I don't know the answer. Um, but I think part of it is our own fault as an industry. Um, again, we've done wonderful things. We've uh, like, we have, there's 250,000 of, of us working, like what an amazing opportunity. Look how far we've progressed. Um, and at the same time, we, we kind of like tell ourselves that we are the be all end all that companies just absolutely need us. We are the differentiators. That's been some of the narrative of, as well. Um, and we, I don't know that we know our histories, you know, do we, do we really know why design thinking came about? Design thinking came about as this popular narrative and this service and whatnot, because it was a for-profit company who needed to find a new revenue model because another revenue model was maybe not working as well. 
right? The IDEO you're talking about? IDEO, right, yeah. yeah. I mean, it was a new revenue model, right? Uh, uh, and th there's some of that history too. So I don't know why we're so uncomfortable with it. And I think still to this day, I get a lot of, you know, deer in headlight kind of moments when I say things like, if you work for a for-profit company, um, the company's purpose is to remain in business. Soluble, uh, survivable, thrivable, all those types of things. Everything points up to continuing to be able to pay your salary. And it's not just designers. Every employee is expected at that business level, that executive level, to contribute to keeping them in business, right? Um, so you should be aware of whether or not that model is doing the types of things that you can support. That's not to say that you might, as an individual, have different priorities yourself where you could say, I can live with that, right? Um, personally, I couldn't go work at a company that sells cigarettes, personally. But I, I know people that can and do because they have a different ranking system. Let's, let's also talk about for-profits. Mm. For-profits may um, make decisions where, where money is the bottom but money is still part of it. They have to fundraise. <laughs> they have to remain uh, in the business of providing that value back to a community, right? In whatever way. So there's there's always money involved. And I think I think a lot of, uh, of this is is circumstance of uh, whether universities, whether uh, a lot of our own narratives, um, a lot of privilege. A lot of privilege uh, um, is is all kind of boiled out of this point. And what what I just say, it's like it's okay, right? That's a thing. Company's there to make money, okay, right? <laughs> you buy things, right? As a consumer, you you do the. It, that's a thing, mm. especially here in the states, right? Capitalism is alive and well. So okay, so now if that is a thing. How can I uh, accept that that's a thing and still get what I would like to get? Yeah. As an individual, as a teammate, as a leader, how can I still make it work? Right. And that's that sort of adjustment. Yeah. So it's almost like you have to accept that that is the cost of continual survival as profit. And the question you need to ask yourself after you've accepted that, and if you want to continue to work in that environment is what do they use the profits to do? And if there is this sort of ethical, right. everyone has different ethics, but if you have that concern, you, you, I suppose you need to look further into what the activities of that company do. And there are many great examples of companies that are for profit. Uh, but that are investing back in things that they hold dear and they attract right. a certain type of person for that reason. Right. And and I go, right, you mentioned ethics. Uh, I think there, when we talk about ethics, I think some people have this concept that, that it's just a standard that everybody has. And I go, like, no, it's like anything, right? Uh, ethics is like a religion or uh, uh, independence or freedom or whatever you want to say. Like everybody has a different take on what that is. And I think my my job and, and part of my mission is just to allow people to be more aware of those contexts and those situations and those scenarios around them. Because it's not just like about the company. What if you work for somebody who's unethical as a person or doesn't align with your value system, right? Mm. Uh, I want you to be um, able to just more in the business context, not necessarily the, 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 the therapy context, that's not my expertise, but in the business context, do you see patterns there of where your leader tells you something and then acts a different way? Do you see something where, ex, you know, the executive leadership does a presentation about a thing and then you see it show up a different way? Then 
can you just make the step and sort of say, well, maybe this is, this is what it is. Does that align with my value? Can I fit into that? And then if so, how can I still get the things that I want to get? Yeah. 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 Right. You know, there, this is all behavior design uh, um, and looking at motivations and abilities and prompts, you know, you could pull up Fog, BJ Fogg's work or, or other stuff like that. And so it's just about like, getting exposed to a little bit more than maybe we want to be exposed. And I know that not everybody wants to kind of, I call it Alice. Not everybody wants to go into the rabbit hole, right? Once you go into the rabbit hole as Alice, you don't come back out the same. And so I acknowledge that. But if you are looking to kind of relieve some of your own, the pressure that maybe you put on yourself um, or the burden that you are there to fix things, a lot of times that's then exposing you to maybe things that traditionally you maybe were like, oh, not seeing it. It's okay. Right. So for those designers that do want to sort of put their head above the parapet and take a look at some of these challenges or at least consider how mm. do you become more effective as a designer and in design, was this part of the reason why you wrote Business Thinking for Designers? You know, what was really yes. Uh, so I had been involved in these wonderful um, offsites, if you will, these wonderful uh, 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 sort of workshops that were called, called Design Leadership Camp. Uh, so it was sponsored by Envision, but run by a small company called Bureau of Digital and uh, was fortunate enough to go to like the first one. And it was where suddenly you're around it, Oh, we're not alone. We're we're all in this safe space. And what I I saw there was that my experiences were very different than whatever. I did not come from traditional like consumer product design. All of my background was in weird, um, more like operational. So you know, when I worked at Apple, I worked for Apple Care. So I worked in Tim Cook's org, not in Steve Jobs' work. So all the stories about like Steve and, and design and Johnny, was I was nowhere near that. I was building enterprise-grade applications internally for the CFO. Mm. So like my job was like getting to play around with standard deviations of 13 KPIs and 25 supporting performance indicators. Like- Whoa, that's really cool. Um, and then building organizations from scratch and customer experience and R&D and IT. And so when I found myself in these conversations, I, I just was like, hope, has anybody had to deal with like OPEX versus CAPEX conversations? And you see people like, what, what is even that word? <laughs> and, and so after going for a few years and seeing these kind of themes and a lot of my colleagues kind of uh, struggling with that, that idea that they were now a small business owner and they were the, the decision maker, right? And they then had to negotiate in, with other small business owners. Um, that's where I, I approached uh, Aaron Walter and, and Eli uh, Woolery, who were both at Envision and had been doing these wonderful Design Better series. And I said, you know, I've had the fortune in my career to have wonderful mentorship, uh, get wonderful, wonderful guidance and be in these unique situations. But I've also worked at companies that didn't really want me to say what I was doing, didn't really let me share. And so I've been a consumer of everybody else's lessons for a lot of my career. I want to write a book and I want to write it for free. I want to give it away and just have it like is this very different rather than talking about principles and like this is going to be an inspiring book. I want to get like, how can we just find little ways that we can help you get unstuck in ways that that have helped me, that have helped others to just get unstuck. And so that's where the book came about. Um, they were great. They were wonderful partners. And um, timing wasn't great. 
So it was scheduled to be released originally March 15th, 2020, three days after the US was closed. So I was using it as my funnel <laughs> for my small business. <laughs> I was like, I can create a mail list or I could write a book. And um, so then we released it on April 15th, but you know, at a time where I think uh, I've gotten wonderful feedback. Uh, it's been, I think it's been downloaded like 40,000 times, like wow. mind boggling. Yeah. Right? Just yeah. what, right. And I've gotten messages from people in Brazil, uh, you know, uh, just things that I never thought possible. And, um, but it's still, still like, it's almost a year old now. And people are just like coming out of uh, a little bit of the fog that, that we've had mostly here in the U S and, and Europe and going, Oh, well, wait, there's this new book here. And, yeah. Well, the, I mean, uh, the content, the content is so practical and, you know, I mean, there's even, you've gone to the extent of describing what some of those terms like CapEx and OpEx are. And it seems to people that know that already, that seems like, Oh, you know, maybe that's not so much of a big deal, but there are so many people that don't understand the language that the, the company, the business organization uses to describe what oh, they, yeah. it's almost like, that's right. on when you, you know, and I, I look at it as one of the wonderful things that design thinking has done, right? You could take it for uh, pros and cons, right? It, it's not design, uh, but what it has done is democratized a lot of the language. Nobody's doing the reverse. <laughs> if you go ask an MBA what a business model is, you're going to get the big answer. And if you ask five MBAs what a business model is, you get five answers. But if you just go and say, well, business model is just, it's just three things, right? The goal of it is just to figure out how you're going to create value, capture value, deliver value. That's it, right? And a business strategy, forget that. If you thought a business model was hard, if you ask everybody what strategy is, oh, goodness, it's all over the place. But if you just break it down and say, you know, business strategy is just how you're going to do that model different than somebody else. That's it. If you just break it down to like that very pragmatic kind of now I can be more attentive and aware in a meeting. The same with like return on investment. That's a that's an acronym that we all get trapped in. What's the ROI of this? And way I say it is like, you know, that's really four questions that somebody's asking, but they don't answer those four questions. Right? Mm -hmm. When somebody asks the ROI, I want you to think of what do we get? When do we get it? How much will it cost us? You know, like that's it. Yeah. So when you hear that, just that's the practical side of it. And yeah, that's that's the book that I wish I had 10 years well, ago. I'm, I'm glad you didn't have it because if you did have it, you might not have written it and shared it with everybody else. Uh, probably true. I have a, a, a good friend, Greg Story, who yelled at me. At, uh, we were having dinner, uh, gosh, it's almost five years ago now. We were out at dinner. And I was sharing the story of like how I, you know, started building balanced scorecards and I had a very different approach for OKRs and teaching OKRs. And, and he looked at me and he's like, wait, when did you start doing this? I was like, oh, you know, in like 2009. <laughs> and he's like, he called me a, you know, a foul word, but he was basically like, you gotta be kidding me. They're, like everybody right? Is that's, that's a contribution, right? You have to share that you have to provide it. And I'm not saying it's the end all be all. It's just another way. And there's so many other people that have been so generous with me and in the industry. And it's I, I like, can I play a part in that? Can I just share? So that's, that's kind of where second wave dive is has come to is like, how can I just help others get unstuck? And maybe make a living out of it too, because that's okay as well. <laughs> yes, it is. Well, look, you know, thank you for sharing it, Ryan. It's really great. We'll be linking to that in the show notes so that people can check it out. It's an invaluable resource. So just bringing us to the close of the show today, if there was one thing that you could bestow on all of the people that are in the design community, what would that be and why? You know, I, I think 
what I would tell them is that they are okay. They're good at what they do. You're good at what you do. You um, provide amazing contributions. And also your job's not done. We need you to keep pushing. We need you to keep pushing it further than maybe where some of us took it. That's the job. Because what design can bring us, um, design can also take away from us too. Right? So uh, use that intent, use that drive to keep doing amazing stuff. And I, I'm so excited to just be in a world where you all are at. Amazing. Are you up for playing a quick game before we go? Yeah, of course. I love okay. games. It's a really simple game. It's called, what's the first word that comes to mind? Okay. Okay. So I've got three words or phrases okay. and I'm going to say one and then you can just tell me what comes to mind for you. Okay. Okay. Yep. All right. First word, design. Complicated. Second word, business. Oh, uh, overlooked. And final word, Flash Gordon. Uh, I, I, it's not a word. It's it's the the song, the lyric. It's it's uh, uh, you know, Queen and Freddie going ah. You know, <laughs> that's that's it. It's just. It's just Freddie Mercury at his best. And that that will be in the show notes, I can guarantee yeah. you. <laughs> right. Transcription, right? <laughs> yeah. Hey, Ryan, thank you so much. It's been such a great conversation today. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. And once again, thank you for so generously sharing your experiences and your insights and your vulnerability with us. It's been a very real conversation. It's been a very important conversation. And I know people are going to get a lot of value out of it. So thank you once again. Thanks so much for having me, Brendan. Uh, I really appreciate it. I've, I've really enjoyed it. And uh, you're a gracious host. Thank you so much. Ryan, what's the best way that people can connect with you? Uh, pretty easy. Uh, uh, there's two ways. There's just at Ryan Rumsey on all the socials, uh, uh, on LinkedIn as well. Um, and then uh, Second Wave Dive. Uh, uh, so at Second Wave Dive, uh, it's the same for the URLs, ryanrumsey.com, secondwavedive.com. And um, Ryan is more of the personal stuff, uh, kind of like neglected these days. Uh, and then Second Wave Dive is all the, the stuff around courses and communities and coaching. Great. Thanks, Ryan. Everybody Thank check you. those out. We'll be linking to those in the show notes as well. And look, if you've enjoyed today's conversation, give the video a like, leave us a comment for myself or for Ryan, subscribe to the channel, and we'll keep these great conversations with experienced leaders sharing their wisdom coming. And until next time, everybody, keep being brave.